Herman Cain's Twitter account has kept tweeting. Jeez, that's fucked up. Yeah, and it keeps posting COVID conspiracy shit when Herman Cain died Died of of COVID. COVID. (laughs) Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed podcast for Tuesday, September 15th, 2020. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Well, Joe, we're going to tackle a couple of topics, discuss them from a variety of angles, drawing on a number of sources with a variety of insights, evaluating these claims, no matter where they come from, doing our best to remain in good faith within the bounds of good faith discussion and discourse, trying to keep ourselves and our belovedly loyal audience adequately informed. Yeah, and uh, we realize that we are human. We don't know everything. We don't know every viewpoint. Our viewpoint isn't the only one that matters. We are not on the ivory tower. Uh, so we can explore things in good faith uh, as much as we can. So anyway, Evan, what do you want to talk about this week? Well, I want to talk about a book I read. I'm a big old nerd reading some books. And nerd. recently... <laughs> it's true, it's true. I recently read a book called The Good Citizen, written by Professor Michael Shudson. And this is actually a book that takes a socio-historical look at citizenship through the ages from America's founding through the 1990s when the book was written. Basically, it was written in response to a perceived decline in the robust nature of American citizenship. At the time when the book was written, the most recent presidential election was the 1996 election in which voter turnout was just 49%. Uh, In 2016, our currently most recent election, voter turnout was only 55.5%. So about half of eligible Americans aren't voting in presidential elections. And it's just as true now as it was when Shudson wrote his book. In fact, it's kind of remarkable how little has changed about the discourse since that book came out. But I think it's a very insightful book because it responds to the question, is citizenship dead? And are modern American citizens worse or more apathetic than previous Americans? And I think it's a worthy claim to investigate. Let's investigate it. Let's do it. Shudson does so by breaking down citizenship into what he calls four eras of citizenship. The first era being assent, the next era being citizenship of affiliation, the third being the informed citizen model, and finally arriving at the model of the rights-bearing citizen. So let's move on and look at the first era that Shudson talks about, which is the era of assent. This is the type of nascent democratic government that we find in early America during the colonies and then immediately after the revolution. During this era, it was assumed that office holders would reflect the pre-existing social hierarchy. It was, in effect, gentry rule dressed up with a ceremonial election every now and again. The original American democracy was not expected to be very democratic as we think of it today. In fact, the founders, it's well documented that the founders disliked political parties, but the reason why they didn't like political parties is because they worried that groups of less deserving citizens would overpower and upend this assumed gentry rule and disturb this system of assent. 
there was no political discourse at all. You weren't actually finding people out in the town square debating what public policy was best for their municipality. People just assumed that the people who were already in power would take care of them. Most elections were uncontested because, again, it wasn't democracy wasn't seen as something that was really even up for a vote or up for discussion at all. There were the predetermined social betters who would rule, and that was the origin that was the origins of democracy. Voting was a formality whereby, yes, we know that in the early days, only landowning white male citizens were able to cast votes. But since it didn't affect anything, voter turnout was extraordinarily low in early America. In most colonies and early states, voter turnout was somewhere between 10 and 25% because there was just nothing to vote for. You could maybe show up and if you voted for the only contestant running, he might buy you a beer or something. That was known as treating. But all in all, early democracy was far from this sort of romanticized notion of public discourse and public choice. It was really just the bulk of the American citizenry assenting to gentry rule. Gentry. Landed. <laughs> no, they broke land. Well, um, and it's also crazy that in the beginning of the nation, like when people voted, it wasn't like they wrote it on a piece of paper and put it in a little box called the secret ballot. You know, you got in a room or in a town square and everyone like shouted, you know, you were called upon and you shouted who you were voting for. Like, it was an extremely public act. Yeah, that's true. That was actually, Shudson gets into this a little bit. It didn't make it into my outline summary, but I'm glad to talk about it since you bring it up. Yeah, basically, the idea was if you could vote in secret, then you would vote based on your own interests instead of what was good for the community. So by making you voice your vote in public, it was supposed to be a check on people trying to let their private ambitions trump what they knew was best for the entirety of the community. And Mm -hmm. so that was a big change that came about eventually within our next few eras. Well, then also, sadly, part of reason why the secret ballot came about was to, in part, disenfranchise black voters because most of them were illiterate and they couldn't read or write, so they couldn't do secret ballots, so they couldn't vote. Yeah. So, okay. So this, this is great because I this is all kind of coming up. You did jump. You, you actually, uh, you jumped all the way up to era three because there's, oh, uh, yeah, man. um, th- definitely what you're saying is accurate, but, um, I'll, I'll just get into the next part so that we can kind of yeah, tell it yeah, as a, yeah, yeah. a linear yeah, let's go, story. Keep going. Yeah. So the second era of citizenship is what's known by Shudson as the era of affiliation. This is when we see the rise of political parties, and you demonstrated your citizenship by being an enthusiastic affiliate of your political party. So the first presidential election that could be said to be really the start of the affiliation era would be the election of 1840. So, you know, into the 1830s is when the public discourse started to shift and marked the beginning of this era of affiliation. 
And during this period is when we had the highest voter turnout. This is what people kind of point to and say, look, see, people used to vote all the time in areas of the North. Voter turnout in even local elections was as high as 80 percent. And it seems awesome, right? Well, I think we need to unpack why voter turnout was so high during the era of affiliation. Basically, this was the only time in American history where voting was explicitly lucrative for voters. And let me explain what I mean by that. Political parties were these growing apparatuses full of people, and these people had to be paid, right? So parties had a lot of jobs to offer individuals. This could be just direct cash payments upon submitting a ballot or being a poll worker on election day, being paid to round up people to get them to go vote for your guy. Or there was also a system whereby if you were a party loyalist and you could get into power, the party would give you a government sinecure and then you would pay back a percentage of your salary to continue funding partisan operations. All of this we think of today as explicit corruption, and that's why this era is also sometimes known as the Gilded Age, because it was about, uh, there was very open cash transfers within the political process, and that was normalized. But I do want to get back to this idea of the ballot, because this is the first era where ballots really become a thing. As Joe had mentioned earlier, you would just kind of go into the town square and maybe you would write something on a piece of paper. But more importantly, was you saying, I vote for John Smith and then lining up behind John Smith in the town square. Um, but the original ballots weren't what we have today. They weren't this thing where you take a huge <laughs> piece of paper with all the candidates on it and then mark off who you want. They were explicitly partisan ballots. So the election officials would just have a box and... The parties were responsible for printing ballots with their candidates' names on it, giving those ballots to voters, and then the voters' only job was to submit that little ballot into the box of the election worker. It wasn't yeah. any sort of high-minded or neutral thing. It was the parties cramming as many pieces of paper into people's hands as they could before the polls closed and hoping it was enough to beat out the next guy. Yeah, the kind of nonpartisan version of that was you would submit your like own piece of paper with the names you vote for written down on it. And like parties took that and made their own. And the other cool thing, too, is that if you did want to split your ballot, sometimes if your poll was if your poll workers were sort of high minded, they would give you little early versions of stickers that you could stick over the name of the partisan candidate and write in your own guy if you wanted to split the ticket, but it was very uncommon. And this was sort of undone by an innovation called the Australian ballot. The Australian ballot is what we today just call a ballot. It's that piece of paper that is printed out by the nonpartisan election commission that has everyone's name written on it for the office and then you tick the box or however you want to mark it for the person you want and this australian ballot is really what allowed people to intervene against the heavy party intervention within the era of affiliation clearly a lot of people were upset by the blatant 
I guess bribery is the correct word for it going on in the political process. And so reformers in the 1880s all the way through the early 1900s established a number of rules and laws which prevented some of the practices from the Gilded Age and the era of affiliation. You know, you had to have the election run by a nonpartisan commission, implement an Australian ballot. You couldn't pay people for votes. These were all things that had to be stated. Mm -hmm. And I think it's uh, interesting. There was actually a political movement and they were known as the Mugwumps. That's who was pushing Ooh. for election reform. I know that's such a great word, right? Mugwump? That's a, that is such an American political <laughs> underground movement <laughs> name. <laughs> Mugwumps. And so we see people who are saying, hey, people are just voting because it directly benefits them. That doesn't fit the high-minded democratic ideals we have. People aren't voting based on what they think is going to make a better society. People aren't actually having their opinions and preferences expressed. They're just voting to get that kickback or to get that cushy job. And so there was a big enough popular movement to change that. But I want to get Joe in here before I move on to era three to talk about the era of affiliation. What are How, how are you processing this? Oh, people are voting, but it's weird. Exactly. That's, I think, what the biggest point that we take away from the era of affiliation is that the only point in U.S. history where we would consider voter turnout high is when there were direct financial incentives for people to vote. And I'm going to try to tie up that string later, but that's what I want you to remember is that the only connection between high voter turnout is direct payments and offers of jobs to citizens. Yeah, but they had those cool hats that they wore on election day, so... Hold mm -hmm. on, tell me about these election hats. I don't know about this. They're like, um... Oh, I forget what they're called. They're like a steamboat hat or something like that. Um... No, that's not right. The first but, person to send me a picture of a steamboat hat wins. Um, it's... Um, no. Message us, message me directly or send it to podcast at adequatelyinformed.com. This uh, is a voter contest. We'll see who's really listening. Uh, 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 campaign voter hat. Those look right. Skimmer hat. Skimmer, Skimmer hat. Let me see. Skimmer hat. Oh yeah, that's, that's what it is. It may have just been from the time period, but um, whenever I see uh, like old depictions of voting and the, uh, you know, of the quote heyday of voting, people wore these hats. <laughs> so anyway, next, next, next era. Yeah. So the mugwump reforms of mugwumps. the late 1880s through the, I know, <laughs> through the early 1900s brought about this era where the model was citizenship by informed competence or the informed citizen model. So the Mugwumps and similar reformers outlawed many of the explicitly partisan tactics that encouraged people to vote. And it was accompanied by this social reckoning that our politics should be high-minded. There should be debate and discourse, and we should consider what's best for everyone, not what's best for ourselves. And this sounds really great that we've brought about this new idealism. But the flip side of that was this belief that because 
things are so high-minded. Not everyone is really qualified to have these types of discussions. So this, Joe, is when we see the eras of huge disenfranchisement. This is when we have literacy tests that disenfranchise black people. Also, something I found was really interesting is that it's during this time in the early 1900s through essentially the civil rights movement, this is the first time that immigrants were denied the ability to vote. Ever since, you know, the United States was a nation of immigrants, so your immigration status was not considered a factor that would bar you from voting. As long as you said that you intended to become an American citizen, you could vote. That had always been yeah. the norm for a hundred years. And it was during this era of the informed citizen model that laws began to be passed saying you have to be a citizen to vote. That was not endemic to United States political thought. That came about in the early 1900s. So now we have... Go ahead, sorry. Well, partially that's because for the first hundred or so years of the United States, you, you were able to immigrate to the United States with no issue as long as you weren't Chinese. Like, basically, if you came from anywhere in the world, there wasn't, like, an immigration checkpoint. They weren't, like, checking names and shit. I mean, maybe they were, but it wasn't, like, sending people back at all. If you got to the shores of America, you were a citizen, Um, which is not the case now. (laughs) Uh, Surprising. But around the turn of the 20th century is about when they changed that, when there started being actual immigration rules and all of that kind of fun jazz. So Mm -hmm. um, just sidebar, I always love it when people are like, my my ancestors came here legally. Well, your ancestors probably cleared the high bar of not being Chinese. Not to say that being (laughs) Chinese is is bad but that was the one bar to become a citizen of the united states and be let in so yeah yeah so yeah at the same time that we're seeing people begin to clamp down on immigration that is being reflected in our franchise who is allowed to vote and who's not and it's not until really the next era that we begin to claw back some of the expansion of the franchise. And that is the fourth era, is the model of the rights-regarding or rights-bearing citizen. It's not so much anymore about who deserves to vote, it's who has the right to vote. There's This new era came about from the women's suffrage and civil rights movements and sparked a deeply held belief in modern America that your voting rights and your other rights as a citizen matter. A lot of the original legal battles in the United States were not over your individual rights to live in the country. They were mostly battles about who has jurisdiction, states, or the federal government. That was the bigger cleavage. But now, in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, We are getting a judicial awakening that, for the first time, begins to interpret laws as protecting individual citizens as opposed to just protecting states from federal government tyranny. But, as we expand the franchise, we also see 
percentages of voter turnout continued to remain low as they were after the Mugwump reforms at the end of the Gilded Age. And so this is where we are today. Essentially, a and another thing to say is that these eras aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. Obviously, there still is a value of informed competence. We still think that people who vote should be able to process information. And we still think that people should be cognizant of their rights. But when taken in the entire context of U.S. voting history, I do think, and, and Shudson argues, that there it, it does reflect a necessarily different understanding of what citizenship looks like today. Even to this day, there is this idea that our voter turnout rates in the United States are a reflection of the dysfunction of the citizenry and are an indictment of our American democratic system. There was even a guest on one of Ezra Klein's recent episodes, Joe, who said that, you know, because our voter turnout rates are this, this proves that our democracy isn't healthy, that our democracy isn't working. <laughs> and it turns out that it's just not true. Across the broad view of U.S. history, at least 50% of the people aren't going to vote. Just mm -hmm. how it is. That is the price of having an expanded franchise is that even though people have the right to vote, not everyone cares about politics. Politics doesn't seem directly vital to a lot of people. The only time when voter turnout could be considered high was when people had direct financial incentives to go and vote because they would be promised a job or given cash for their ballot. This is not some unique apathy of our generation or even our parents' generation. This is what democracy look lo looks like. Democracy kind of... In America. Means, yeah, you're right. American democracy means kind of low voter turnout. And what Shudson argues is that even though we don't have as high voter turnout during the era of affiliation, look at all the things that we've gained we have fewer barriers to the franchise. Obviously, there's still a lot of work that we need to do in terms of voter ID laws and felony disenfranchisement and all of these other barriers to having our democracy work well, like gerrymandering. But we're so much better than we have been during any other era. So sort of the takeaway of Shudson's book is that it's not true that we are somehow in an era of democratic dysfunction. And in many ways, we're actually doing a lot better than our forebears. I could go in a very uh, snarky uh, leftist position of, well, we never had a functioning democracy, um, which in some respects. Yeah, maybe not. Know. Maybe so, not. But but I, I, I guess the real contention or the real argument here is that Essentially, if we wanted to have a system that had high voter turnout, we would have to be creating something new within the American context. Yeah. That hasn't necessarily existed before, at least in the same on the same terms that we would want this new high voter turnout world to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It just seems like a response to people who pine away and say, oh, man, you know. The, the founders, they really got it. They, they would be so disappointed in us. But like I said, during the initial eras of politics, 
there was hardly any democracy as we know it today in terms of having competitive elections and public discourse, and voter turnout topped out at 25% at best in most elections. So I think there, you know, Joe, you're absolutely correct. There are legitimate critiques about the ability of democracy to function as it's envisioned, but to the extent that democracy has ever functioned, it's functioning that well now. These, yeah. you know, all this talk of millions of people, tens of millions of people not voting is not some unique problem and a failing on our part that we need to solve. That's kind of just the rules of the game. Also, this isn't directly related, but you do not have the right to vote for president. Continue. That is not a, that is not a right in our, in our constitution enshrined. Um, we vote for the president but you do not have a constitutional right to vote for president because that power to elect the president is given to the states and the states have subsequently given us the right to vote for president, but they don't have to. Fascinating. So, yeah. You have is no that right. Some of your, to, <laughs> is that some of your electoral college research coming back? Uh, that, that was like a new spin on uh, like a new conclusion on like an absent of information like mm. oh wait if it's to the states then nobody actually has the right to vote <laughs> for president we just do it and all like <laughs> any state could just choose hey the legislature is going to assign all of its electoral votes to this state well that actually does kind of come up um, where there's one of the talks of electoral reform to undermine the electoral college is this popular vote compact where if they get enough states to agree to award their electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote, then isn't that kind of what we're talking about here? Even if Indiana votes for one candidate and then that candidate loses the national popular vote, Indiana if it yep. agrees to this compact, which it won't, can still sign all of its electors to the candidate who wins the popular vote. Oh, yeah. A state could decide that uh, the the way that they decide to assign their electors is by like a, a dog race or something. <laughs> and they could make that legally binding. They could tie it to a coin flip. They, you know, they can choose whatever they want. The electors are theirs and it's their choice of how to apportion them. Um, that was actually part of, uh, kind of the controversy in the Bush v. Gore, um, you know, Supreme court litigation where basically, um, the Florida state kind of strong armed the Supreme court into, making a decision in terms for Bush because they were basically on the edge of going, well, if you don't settle this for Bush, we're just going to pass some legislation that said he won and apportion it that way. Hmm. And I guess in the face of that threat, it seemed more democratically legitimate <laughs> to uh, just uh, r rule at the Supreme Court level. Um Oh boy, what what a what a shit show that would have been if it, the Florida State Legislature had decided to uh, just do that. <laughs> but um, it was already a shit show. But it would either be a bigger shit show. Um, so anyway, voting. Fascinating. It's been it's been a hell of a ride, America. Yeah, and there's just one other sort of implication that I want to pull here. 
because it's not something that Michael Shudson could have envisioned when he was writing the book, but it actually kind of made me reconsider Bernie Sanders' electoral strategy, actually, because if you remember, one of Bernie's main claims is how as to how he was going to win, while not kowtowing to moderate voters, was that he was going to inspire so much enthusiasm that he was going to create a whole new voter base and the new turnout would propel him to victory. And it didn't happen in the primaries. And based on what I've read now, it seems completely impossible that it would have happened at any point. So I just think that it's it's kind of fascinating how reading this text from the 90s, if, if I would have read it earlier, I could have known at the beginning that Bernie's strategy was really bad from the get-go. I think that you can do a lot to mobilize voters at the margins, but to predicate your entire electoral strategy on millions of new voters turning out to vote for you, we've just seen historically that it's pretty darn close to impossible. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was kind of like... Just like, all right, now if we could just get this thing to do X that it has never done before, <laughs> then we can we can make it win. And it's like, well, shouldn't you ground it in something that has happened before? No. <laughs> yeah, um, people don't vote. That's just something that happens. People don't yep. vote. And Bernie didn't acknowledge that. So I love you, Bernie. But uh, if you would have read this book, you would have known that you were dead in the water with that strategy. (laughs) Ah, fun times. Yeah, so I thought it was a really good book. I recommend it if you're looking for something to read. It's not the most high-profile book. My dad just kind of had a copy of it laying around, and he, in his way that is what my dad does, he just, like, handed it to me. He was like, "You you should read this book. So then I read it, but Michael Shudson... You should read this book, Evan. (laughs) <laughs> yeah he's he's uh he's like sean connery light that's my dad yeah yeah uh, <laughs> he uh yeah so it uh it was fascinating i think it informed me not only about our the history of our citizenship but it also gave me a new way to interpret what citizenship means in modern times so good book good book i didn't read it but i'll i'll take your word for it <laughs> Well, Joe. Yes, Evan. I'm going to assume that you did read or see or interact with something this week. Um, no. Oh. Um, well, I thought then what? Uh, I oh, interacted with my own thoughts. Yeah, you um, can interface with ideas. What do you want to talk about? Yeah. All right. So I want to talk about this fun, wonderful concept called discretionary income. Um. It's it's one of those lovely economic terms that is totally devoid of any soul or any, um, you know, tangible meaning. But the idea of it is uh, discretionary income is, or discretional, which I, I, I'm still kind of new to it as well. But the idea of it is that it's your income minus your taxes and then also minus your uh, expenses, like your necessary expenses, and that's whatever you have left. Most people colloquially would call this disposable income, but I guess disposable income is a different 
has a different meaning in economics terms, which well, is that's stupid. the income that you end up throwing into the trash. Yeah, 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 <laughs> into the pit. Um, and the reason why I've been thinking about this is it was all sparked by kind of this tweet that I saw where. So you did see something. Yeah, I, I guess it was a while ago. <laughs> I guess I did see something. I saw one tweet. Um, I should have probably pulled it up, but the, the gist of it is that, you know, in, in like Austin, Texas, rent prices are lower because they allow trailer parks which are very cheap housing. And in San Francisco, they don't allow anything that is other than like a single family home to be built. And that means rent prices are way higher and people, you know, if someone were on disability, you know, a fixed check from the government, uh, you know, to help with their expenses, they can't live in a place like San Francisco or L.A. or New York, these places where the rents are super high, but they can live within their means somewhere where they can get cheap rent. And uh, you know, trailer parks are often places that have very cheap rent or, you know, whatever mortgage or however, however the payment for housing is structured. So this got me thinking is like, what if like, what if we were to measure people's incomes, not by like the dollar amount that they make, but the amount of discretional income that they have or discretionary income, meaning that like, you know, we, you know, when you talk about economics and people's incomes, you always run into like the, oh, I'm making a hundred thousand dollars in some, you know, in, in LA, but you know, that hardly means anything because it's so, you know, housing costs so much here and traffic and, you know, the commute costs so much that I, you know, I end up not having a ton. But then if you have a, make a hundred thousand dollars in Galesburg, then you're, you know, you have a, a ton of money, you know, you're loaded, you're pretty set. Um, so a way to think about that is through discretionary income, where it seems like if you have more of it, people are better off. And if, or if you're at zero, you're just swimming, like you're, you're waiting water. You are taking in enough money to pay off all the necessary things. And then if you have positive, you're able to um, participate more in the economy. You're able to buy more frivolous things. You're able to get more services that help pump things in the economy. But then if you have negative discretionary income, which it is possible, that means that you're not even able to make the basics. Like you're poor. This is like poverty. And this is, you know, if you have negative discretionary income through a certain, you know, a uh, certain lens, you know, you could be impoverished at many income levels, which happens in places like Portland or San Francisco or LA where people can make a whole lot of money, but they're kind of priced out of the, uh, housing market, even if they, uh, make a lot of money. And so I've just been thinking, what if it was like a policy goal to make cost of living like as cheap as possible 
or, you know, a at least the bottom end of cost of living to make it as cheap as possible. Like the United States already made food prices like we food prices are heavily subsidized. Mm-hmm. So food prices are very cheap compared like we spend a very small percentage of our income in the United States on food compared to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So in that way we're helping boost discretionary income by keeping food prices low. What if we were able to do that for like all the other factors of people's lives? Like make sure that housing is cheap enough that people can afford it. Like I just talked with a friend who uh, I think he lives in Seattle and he's just trying to buy a like starter home. And even that would be like $600,000, which is just like ridiculous. Um, So what if... You know, how much more economic activity could he do if he were living in Seattle with the job that he had, but then could buy a house for $60,000 and not have to spend all of that money on rent or saving up for a house, which, you know, is partially economic activity, but then also in that market, you know, it it really only helps the economy when people buy new houses Mm -hmm. because just trading the same stuff back and forth. I mean, it's like when, you know, you know, if you trade used video games, it's not creating new wealth in the video game industry. But anyway, it's if like, and I've been thinking about this in like terms of electricity, what if we made electricity so cheap that, you know, people were able to have more money or we, you know, made it so that there were homes next to, uh, you know, made it so that it was easier to build homes next to people's work so that people had transportation costs. Yeah. Well, yeah, the transportation costs would be way down because, um, you know, if you have to commute an hour to your job, that makes that means that you're losing all of that money. And then also all of that time. And then like another way I've I've been wanting to think about like how we live our lives is like an idea of discretionary time. Now, this is just me floating things. I haven't put a ton of thought of it. But what if we like measured people's lives, you know, not by the hours that they worked, but the hours that they have to not be working or not a necessary part of their day because you know we talk about like you know unpaid labor and all that kind of stuff it's like well what if you know i have a job and i work 10 hours and you know it takes a half hour each way to get there so that's 10 hours and then or let's just even say eight divorce it from my own reality (laughs) eight hours half hour to get there each way so that's nine hours of my day that's taken up and then i also need to sleep eight hours so that's 17 hours of my day taken up then assume an hour a half hour for getting ready in the morning and winding down in the evening so that's 18 hours so out of that day then i have six hours left of discretionary time but then if I have like kids or I need to prepare food that eats away at it, eats away at it a little by little where, you know, you could end up where people only have an hour or two of discretionary time per day. So I don't know. The I, This was just kind of rambling and just putting a whole lot of thoughts out there. But I 
I, I even tried looking it up and there isn't a whole lot of studies on this or use, you know, it's kind of like a, a one-off some you know, weird quirky thing that people look at sometimes, but it's not like a standardized um, topic of economic study, discretionary income, which I think could be hugely valuable and a, a real good lens to look at you know, individual economic issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I've got a couple of areas for further thought and discussion here. Number one is kind of talking about the discretionary income, because I do think that it's important because, you know, that's kind of, I, it's been so long ago now. I can't remember if this was on one of our earliest shows or if this was in a pre podcast that didn't end up making it to air, but that kind of influences everything we talk about in terms of tax policy and whatnot, because your goal shouldn't be to tax income. It should be to tax discretionary income. You never want to take money out of someone's pocket that they need to pay their rent, to pay their mortgage, to buy food. So right. I think that having an expanded understanding of discretionary income, how it varies from region to region, is extraordinarily important. Like then, a like a tax cut for someone who has negative discretionary income is a very net positive, mm -hmm. but a tax cut for someone who has very high discretionary income isn't really going to change things all that much. Yeah, because their money, if, if they already have a lot of discretionary income, any extra money that they have, they'll probably save it. They're not probably going to spend it. Well, and then, and then this is, I mean, this isn't even like redistribution. This is like a making sure people are kind of, you know, just keeping it so that people are able to live their lives without like needing government assistance. Yeah. That could partially be alleviated by not having the government taxing them. Mm -hmm. And then as it applies to sort of other policies trying to get cost of living down to boost discretionary incomes. I know you're, you're, you're so eager to, to say zoning reform. So talk about zoning reform. <laughs> oh, zoning reform. It just makes it so that in places that have demand for, um, like places like San Francisco, where a ton of people really want to live there, that you can make it so that you can, people can build housing to hold all the people who want to live there. Otherwise your housing prices are just going to keep skyrocketing <laughs> um, because the demand for that little one single family home on that block is going to be way higher because there isn't a whole lot of other places to live. Um, so, and that's what, and that's, you know, that's a, to a degree what suburbs are for a lot of, well, historically, it, or, you know, in some ways, um, you know, a place where you can go and live that's a little bit further out, that's a little bit cheaper, and then you could possibly commute into the city to do your work. I mean, I guess that's what happens in the West Coast cities. Not quite the vision of the suburbs of the Midwest and the East, but... Um, well, even know. in the Midwest and the East, there's sometimes called bedroom communities, basically entire towns that exist just to house workers from a nearby bigger town that doesn't have enough housing. Yeah. yeah. But like, and then another 
reason why this discretionary income seems is very important because it seems to be that you like in order for a family to create wealth, especially intergenerationally, there needs to be a period of time where there is at least some discretionary income. Mm -hmm. Um, So what I learned um, when I read The Color of Law um, by Richard Rothstein was that there were for in, you know, in the discrimination of housing, there was a good period of time where, you know, uh, black people had such limited options in housing and they had so few places where they were like legally or, you know, that kind of hard you know, social power where mobs would show up if they, you know, bought a house in the wrong neighborhood. But, you know, that, so they had a limited choice in housing and there were so many people in these areas that wanted house, you know, so many black people who wanted housing in these areas where there was such limited housing that in one example in the book, a, uh, an owner of a, an apartment building, changed over from being all white to all black because he could charge the black residents four times more rent. And I just can't help but think that that is like such a key to why there is such a wealth gap. Like even even just forget the discrimination in home loan mortgages. Like just the fact that these people who had to pay four times the rent of a white person that means that they were missing out on you know three times the discretionary income that the white person had Mm -hmm. based on that and that discretionary income could have gone into like i mean especially for the case of a lot of middle class black people in the mid-century you know that could have just gone into working fewer hours um you know, and then through that, being able to spend time with their kids or being able to improve their property or, you know, improve something else about their lives. But because of the such high, the the rents that were so high, they had to work, you know, both parents would have to work two jobs in a family and all their money would be going into paying for housing and then they wouldn't have a whole lot left over to ever invest in either themselves, their kids, or just in the markets. But then white people would have been able to do that with ease. And I think this is the case now with a lot of these cities with such high rents. I mean, it's not just rent. It is other things as well. It's student loans as well. Student loans and, uh, you know, interest payments, you know, that's also cost of living for people. Mm-hmm. You know, the co- you know, like I said, the cost of food, the cost of transportation, the cost of uh, essential bills like energy. So, you know, again, if we were to make, you know, uh, electricity super, super, super cheap, then then that would be a much lesser part of people's bills. Like, you know, so how would we, we, how would we do it? I'm not telling you to solve it right now, but just what are some ideas for what what can a a government do to make energy cheaper? Um, So a government to make energy cheaper has to be willing to invest. Well, it is complicated because this is something I've been trying to work out on my own. 
but it seems to be like a difficult proposition. So part of it is having to research in the technology because there has been kind of a gap in the um, the kind of rate of innovation in the energy field. Um, and then, you know, just also with climate change, you know, it just um, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation if there were, you know, if we didn't have to put on the caps on all the fossil fuels that we were using. But, um, I mean, I, you know, I, my pet project investing in nuclear, um, but then also like I saw something recently where Texas is actually expanding its, uh, solar capabilities way faster than California this year. And why is because one it's hitting like solar has hit the price level where it can work economically on its own without subsidies. But two, in Texas, there are such lower regulatory barriers to putting up solar that it's just easier for people to do it. Like there's, I'm sure there's probably a whole lot more projects wanting to be done in California for solar, but they make the regulatory burden so much that it's hard to do so that the costs increase and then it becomes harder to fund the project. Whereas if you have a relatively low regulatory burden for putting up solar, you know, zoning, getting the building permits, this or that, and then God forbid you cast a shadow on a park or something, but you know, and then, but if you make it real cheap to put up, then, or real easy to put up, then people are going to put it up. So those are just some things that can be done right now in in a way. But I feel like there needs, especially with energy, there needs to be a lot more research and kind of development into how we make electricity cheaper and more abundant. But anyway... If, you know, if we were to make able to make electricity cheaper and more abundant, then that would be less of a cost on people's lives and then also give them more discretionary income where they were better able to, like, exist in the world. Absolutely. And I think that that is all very important. I do want to pivot to my sort of second observation, and this one is maybe a little bit less directly related to the content and more about the form of your segment, but I, I just really like the introduction of this idea of an economic measure of discretionary time, because I think that, you know, it's been written by people smarter and more into it than me, that stuff like GDP, their wartime economic measures that could count how much we were manufacturing to help the war effort. Mm -hmm. But they're really sort of antiquated. And I think we need better economic measures that evaluate how people are doing and moving yeah. towards that some people have called it human capitalism. So I know there's been proposals for like a, a gross national happiness as an indicator. But I think that discretionary time could be a part of it too, because you know, let's say, as Joe was kind of spitballing a hypothetical day, you work eight hours and you, you know, say childcare is expensive in your neighborhood. So you have to 
take care of your kids for four hours and then you still need sleep and you have to do all the household chores, you could be making a lot of money. You could be making a little money. But if you only have 15 minutes in a day for your own pursuits and your own passions, then how, yeah. how rewarding is your life really? Yeah. And so that's what it kind of gets at. I think there's a lot of different economic measures and tools that we need to evaluate. How are people doing in their lives? And I think that could be a good part of it. Yeah. You know, and I could, I've also thought like, you know, what would, you know, if you measured people's incomes, not by like the strict dollar amount that they made, but like the discretionary income per hour. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, you know, if you work 40 hours a week and you're making, I don't know, $15 an hour, but, you know, you really need to be working at a rate of $16 an hour to get net zero discretionary income, then you're not making enough. But mm-hmm. if you need to be earning at a rate of $10 an hour to get net zero discretionary uh you know, uh, income, then you're making a discretionary income of $5 an hour, mm-hmm. which ain't, you know, I, I, again, because the research hasn't been done, I don't know if that's good or bad, but then and that's you been could- one of the sort of one of the realizations about the push for a national $15 an hour minimum wage is that sort of having any number that is a blanket number for the entire country is going to, meet a lot of challenges because you're right in some areas a $15 an hour minimum wage like you're going to be really making bank and it's going to be tough for employers to afford to keep people employed at that rate in that economy mm-hmm. but then in big markets New York Los Angeles San Francisco you're going to need a higher mm-hmm. minimum wage anyway because right. you're just not going to get up to that zero, net zero <laughs> uh, discretionary income on a wage that small in big markets so yeah. I think what we're kind of getting at here is that most economic measures should be tailored to the market that you're in. I think that's kind of I mean, this uh, is, a more this succinct is way like, of saying a lot of this. This is almost like saying means-tested economic statistics. Yeah. But, but it's really hard because, well, and then there isn't like a cogent um, like – theory of how to calculate discretionary income or like a standardized way. So one way I've thought of like, let's say like an effective discretionary income where you calculate it based on like, you know, even if you had someone, you know, let's say in this area where you were, and when I say this area, like living in Galesburg, like making a hundred thousand dollars, which is like a ton of money. But you base that discretionary income based on, you know, if they were to um, have the lowest possible housing cost and the lowest possible food cost and the low, you know, and, you know, whatever the minimum uh, cost of their travel time. And then you could base discretionary income off of that because, you know, people make choices about you know, even the necessities in their lives. Yeah, but then maybe that not could be, the minimum, but the median, maybe. Well, but but then that could be contrasted with like an actual discretionary income with what they're actually spending on housing and what they're actually spending on food and all that kind of stuff. But and you know, yeah, it no, could I be a median. It. I mean, it, there there are different ways to go about it, um, because. In the end of the day, 
it's to it's it's kind of a snapshot of like when you have discretionary income that is actually the income that at least under my eyes you have something to do with it Mm -hmm. um you actually have real choices of what to do with it so if it turns out that a family like under effective uh discretionary income they should have twenty thousand dollars every year of discretionary income but in practice they have negative one thousand dollars every year like that would that could be chalked up to the own the family's own choices about how to spend their money and how Mm -hmm. they want to take on debt and all that stuff whereas you know, if you just talk about it in straight dollar terms, you may not be able to see that. Like, you know, they could have chose to live in a house that was a little bit more within their means. They could have chose to buy a used car instead of the new one that has a $700 a month payment. You know, all those little things that like... Because I feel like a lot of times in economic numbers, there is kind of like everybody tries to use it to moralize. Mm -hmm. And I feel like discretionary income is a kind of metric where, you know, I'm sure if, you know, I go and (laughs) go get my PhD and formalize the study of discretionary income, there would be ways in which it would be used to um, unjustly moralize spending and habits and behavior, but it would be a better way than the way we do now. Mm -hmm. And it'd be a more complete picture of how that works. Absolutely. So, um, yeah. And I was very um upset at the lack of research on discretionary income (laughs) um because i i very much believe i wonder if like it really comes down to that the way to get out of poverty is to just have some sort of sustained period of discretionary income like if full stop what that that's what it is And if the levers of government can either make the cost of living cheaper or, you know, in case of some people, you know, if if the giving individuals a tax break would get them um, a greater, you know, closer to having positive discretionary income, that would probably be more worth it than giving them services or whatever other social programs would be. Um, But I don't know. I don't know. That's just me spitballing. So. So if you're out there and you've got the ability to study economics, this is our plea. Look into it. uh, Yeah, let's start the discretionary income bandwagon. Hey. We're going to start a whole new school of economic thought. The Joe School. The Joe School. The Hicks. The Hicks Theorem. Mm -hmm. Um. But anyway, that's those are I'm trying to think if I had any more thoughts on discretionary income because that's yeah, just make the world cheaper for people and they'll have more money to do things. Whoa, crazy. Ooh. Crazy, crazy, <laughs> crazy, crazy. Well, anyway, uh, so we're uh, actually there's no end segment today. 
Uh, we're wrapping it up a little early, so we hopefully we gave you a little bit meatier Joe and Evan segments. Um, I will plug for um, I have no incentives in this whatsoever, but uh, pick up the book One Billion Americans by Matthew Iglesias coming out. Uh, we, Evan and I, are most likely going to be talking about it either next or at some point we will be doing a big look at the uh, Iglesias Manifesto for uh, (laughs) United States hegemonic power. But um, take a look at it, read it if you want, or just read the nasty reviews of it, and uh, then we'll probably discuss it and you'll maybe have an idea of what's going on. Yeah, looking forward to it. And I want to end the show today by saying that Adequately Informed is saddened to learn of the passing of David Graeber. David Graeber died on September 2nd subtly, suddenly due to an illness while he was in Venice with his wife. Graeber was the author of Bullshit Jobs, which was the subject of an Adequately Informed book review earlier in the year, a book that I immensely enjoyed, and he was sort of one of the social theorists who I was really on the same wavelength with. And it was really crushing to lose him so quickly. He died at the age of 59 in what is reported to be natural causes, but obviously that's that's a little bit young to go so suddenly of natural causes. I'm not trying to, you know, cast dispersions or claim any conspiracy theories, but David Graeber... Mm-hmm. His presence will be missed in my intellectual life. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. Well, on that note, that is our episode. We hope that you enjoyed the show. We thank you for listening. Thank you, thank you. We thank Anthony Hish for the music, as always. We thank Alec Mills for his no-hitter. Good work, Alec. We thank uh, Matthew Iglesias for... And anyway, <laughs> which is funny because I'm the fan of him and I just can't. <laughs> but anyway, my name's uh, Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. We hope that you've been adequately informed. <laughs>